Hello, coconuts. Welcome to another episode of TFC Stock Geek Out. You know, whenever you start reading about investing, you read about value investing and sometimes growth investing, and these seem different, right? Completely. But you know, what is actually value? What is actually growth? Are they really mutually exclusive? Or you know, can we find a middle ground? Listen on to this episode to find out. To give us a bit more of a primer on this topic today is surging. Yeah, we are always happy to have him on. And today, you know, he will come and we'll talk about more about the different growth and value camps and how he has taken elements of each to come up with his own way of evaluating companies. For reference, this episode is recorded on 18 April 2022. Our discussion today is solely for education and entertainment purposes only and does not serve as any form of advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do and empowering us financially to do more for you. Let's geek out! Welcome back. Yeah, we are continuing again our approach in, in the different types of investing and, and doing deep dives about how we can invest rather than you know, specific stocks. And today we have you know, Surging. Surging has been on previous episodes with us. Fantastic thinker about stocks, you know, great investor. And you know, welcome, Surging. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, no worries. I'm always happy to have you on, man. So why, why don't we start? Um, on, on the big, big picture first, right? Um, fundamental and, and technical analysis. So, um, and sometimes people actually mix those two things together uh, to create their own unique uh, style. So personally, I'm much more in the fundamental analysis camp. So I think about stocks as a piece of a business. Um, and that is really from, I think, first principles thinking. So the way I approach the stock market is really first to think about what uh, what are stocks, right? And so the, I would say the answer that I've arrived at is that it's simply a place to buy and sell pieces of a business. And so okay. if that is, and then that leads to the next um, thought, which is if a stock is a uh, piece of a business, then what would determine its price over the long run? And I think mm -hmm. it's only logical to say that the, the price of a stock would be determined by the strength of its underlying business fundamentals over the long run. So the next thought then becomes, okay, if that's the case, then how can I uh, try to find stocks with businesses that I think can grow at high rates over the long run? So by and large, I think uh, price movement and business values are detached. But there mm -hmm. are special situations where the movement of a stock's price would actually affect its underlying business value. And this is a concept called reflexivity. And I first came across this term from George Soros. It's this idea that the movement of a financial asset's price will actually affect its underlying value. Um, mm -hmm. When applied to the stock market, um, there are a few, I think, instances where reflexivity can be, uh, can be seen. So um, I think um, back in January 2021, that was, I think, uh, when this whole uh, Wall Street bets mania kind of yep. happened or kind of um, exploded into the public consciousness. And one of the central stocks in the Wall Street bets episode was GameStop, right? So back yeah. then it was a struggling was uh, retailer. It was a business that wasn't very well run. Maybe one can argue that GameStop um, was in a situation where um, it could potentially uh, be bankrupt in a few years if its business does not improve, right? Uh, but yep. what was interesting is that uh, during the Wall Street Bets episode, uh, GameStop, uh, GameStop stock price actually increased quite significantly. Mm -hmm. And it managed to find a 
group of buyers that were willing to uh, buy its shares at, at a high price. And the management actually kind of took advantage of that by issuing new shares of itself uh, to kind of improve the strength of its balance sheet. So it, took, so it sold new shares of itself at a high price to bring in a lot of cash into its balance sheet. And from that perspective, the, the risk of bankruptcy then, has, then became dramatically lower. And so yes. one could say that the value of GameStop uh, has actually increased because of the increase in the share price. Coming back to the original point, by and large, I think uh, stock prices tend to be detached from underlying um, business value. Mm -hmm. I think there was one really interesting um, uh, research being done by Robert Schiller or Bob Schiller. So okay. he's uh, the finance professor who is famous for creating the, uh, the cake ratio or the cyclically yes. adjusted price earnings ratio. And he's also well known for creating, I think, the K-Schiller housing index in the US. So he actually created this uh, piece of research where he showed the uh, movement of stock prices in relation to changes in a stock's uh, dividend. So he took the, the level mm -hmm. of the stock's dividend as like a, um, as kind of a proxy for the business's actual underlying value. And what he found is that the, um, the change in the dividends paid by the stock was actually a lot tamer a lot less volatile than the change in the stock price. And I think it's also very interesting if, you know, uh, anybody who's listening to this, if they were to plot a chart of a stock's, say, earnings per share or free cash flow per share or revenue per share, right, if you plot that over a long period of time, say 10 years or more, and you plot and you overlay that over the, the stock's um, stock price chart, I think uh, there will be very interesting patterns that you'll be able to observe. Yes, there, there are points in time where price movements create kind of some kind of feedback look but you know at the end of the day i think uh, i think the the general view is still that well outside of these kind of feedback loops you know price movements generally are just well not as important as, as the underlying business itself in, in the long run i mean i think about it as a bit of a sliding scale right you you can be a bit of growth and, and a lot more value and, and all that but you know do these categories still make sense to you so I think whether or not these categories make sense really depends on how the individual approaches uh, the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. It really depends on uh, how he or she wants to operate in the stock market. So in my personal case, um, I do not believe that there is a useful dichotomy between uh, value and growth when approaching okay. stocks because the, a business's value actually comes from its growth as well because if it's not mm. growing its value actually declines over time but if it's growing its value can actually grow over time right now of course the growth must be done in a sensible um, and economical way um, and if that's the case then the business's value actually increases over time yeah so i do not subscribe to that whole idea of uh, value or growth personally mm. i'm just interested in uh, investing in businesses where i think their values can actually increase over time. I'm also okay. interested in investing in businesses where there's a very large gap between current value um, and current share price, right? So um, traditionally, I think that's how people might understand uh, value investing to be, which is mm -hmm. you're actually able to purchase a, a business uh, where its current share price is actually a fraction of its current business value. Okay. Then I guess you know, implicit in that is also that there, there's some sort of valuation methodology and, and all of that, right? Valuation should not be done um, in isolation with regards to the quality or the characteristics of the business. 
um, I think these two things are actually very closely related. So maybe I can start with uh, just briefly going through my investment yep. approach, and then if you want yeah. to, we can we can dig deeper into each of them. Right, so yeah, I good. generally like to invest in companies that I call compounders. So these are businesses mm -hmm. that I think can compound their business values at high rates over the long run. And mm -hmm. I think that compounders tend to exhibit certain characteristics. So there are six things that I tend to look out for. So is this company operating in a market that is large and or growing? Right, and this is okay. important because uh, if I want businesses that can grow at high rates over the long run, Having mm -hmm. a long runway for growth makes it a lot easier for the company to grow. So the next thing is actually, uh, I want balance sheets that are strong. Mm -hmm. So I typically like balance sheets that have more cash than debt. And the reason why is because I'm investing with the idea that uh, bad things will happen to the economy or to a certain industry from time to time. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I do not know when these bad things will happen. Right, and so if a company has more cash than debt on hand, it makes it easier for the company to be able to survive or thrive uh, when these rough times arise. So when yep. you have a very weak balance sheet that has a ton of debt, um, when, uh, when the economy or your particular industry um, or even your individual business runs into a rough patch, it becomes very difficult uh, to survive or mm -hmm. to make it out uh, alive or you know, in the same state as you were yeah. before. Whereas if you have a strong balance sheet, then things are different. You, even when your competitors have to batten down the hatches, you know, you have the ability to continue investing in R&D, you have the ability mm -hmm. to continue servicing your customers well, you have the ability to continue growing your workforce, right? And, yeah. and, and in more extreme situations, imagine like, you know, there are two companies serving the same market um, across, uh, in one street, right? And one company has a strong balance sheet, the other has a weak one, and when times are tough, you know, the, comp the employees uh, in the company with the weak balance sheet may look across the street and say, wow, you know, the, on, on, the, on the other side of the street, everybody still seems to be happy. They mm -hmm. seem to be doing well. You know, career prospects still look good. When COVID uh, started, I think there was a kind of a good example of how this played out. So if you look at um, like a company that uh, I have a position in called Chipotle Mexican Grill. So it okay. runs Mexican restaurants in the US. Um, yeah. When COVID happened, it had a really strong balance sheet. And so even when mom and pop restaurants were closing down, it had the ability to jump in and take over prime real estate space, right? So in such a situation, um, it could emerge from a period of stress in a stronger state than before because it, it now had access, it now has access to uh, real estate that it did not have before, right? Because yeah. its competitors, uh, you know, went out of business or just couldn't sustain themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the third thing is uh, I like management teams with integrity, mm -hmm. capability, and the ability to innovate. Um, and so I in, so in investing literature, I think investors will often come across this term called uh, competitive advantage or mm -hmm. economic moat. So these two terms uh, mean more or less the same thing. And it's uh, a unique quality that a company has that protects a company's profits from competitors for a long period of time, right? Um, and when thinking about competitive advantage or economic modes, um, there are a few, I think, uh, things that investors tend to look at. So it could be in, uh, the ownership of intellectual property, right? Or it could be like being a low cost uh, producer. So it's such that you have uh, economies of scale, right? And a few others. So I spend a lot of time uh, trying to study management 
And the few things I look out for would be first integrity. So that would be whether or not the management team thinks about minority shareholders as actual mm-hmm. partners. So uh, one of the, so one of the things I look out for would be uh, how the management team is compensated. So like um, in some cases, companies disclose actual matrix uh, that determine a management's pay. So I like to look yep. at those matrix to think about whether or not it makes sense. So for example, you know, if a management team is paid uh, based upon long-term changes in the stock price, uh, as well as long-term changes in say free cash flow or earnings mm-hmm. or free cash flow per share and so on, uh, then I think those are sensible matrix because uh, my interest as a long-term shareholder, uh, my, as a long-term minority shareholder, would actually be aligned with uh, the management team. Now, yep. if a management team is compensated based upon changes like you know a company's market capitalization or just revenue, then uh, I tend to be a bit more wary because um, changes in these metrics need not necessarily lead to um, increases in the business's value because for example I, if I, I can grow my revenues very quickly you know if I'm selling uh, a, a, do- a one dollar coin at 50 cents right yeah. like, like that's my product I'm gonna generate <laughs> tremendous revenue in a very short period of time but does that make economic sense it doesn't so that doesn't yeah. actually increase uh, business value and, and uh, about I'm talking about market cap you know a company can actually increase its market cap um, but yet you know have uh, investors lose money is uh, there is significant dilution that outweighs the mm. increase in the market cap, right? So I want management teams that are compensated based on matrix that makes sense to me as a long-term minority shareholder in a company. So that's on the topic of integrity. And then another thing I look mm. out for with regards to integrity would be uh, where the, whether or not a company has significant related party transactions. So for example, you know, if, uh, if I run a restaurant uh, and it's a listed company, and I happen to have, uh, I happen to own, say, chicken farms and fish farms. Uh, I can make my restaurant company buy my chickens and fish from my farms. Related party transactions are actually a potential avenue for uh, for uh, dishonest management teams to actually uh, pilfer the the wealth of the listed company that they're managing. Right, so that's one area that I look at. If there is related party transaction, it does not mean that the management team is dishonest. What I will do is I will try to look at the related party transactions to see like if they actually make any sense. Uh, to give you an example, there's a company I have a vested uh, interest in, which is Hai Di Lao. So they run hot pot restaurants in China and Singapore and other parts of the world. So Hai Di Lao has, for, uh, since its listing, has actually had very significant related party transactions because mm. a lot of its suppliers are actually also entities and companies that are controlled by its founding, uh, founding management team. Right, but when I looked at the, uh, the profit margins of Hai Di Lao and I compare that to other restaurant operators that are listed and operating in China, they actually tend to match pretty closely. So from that okay. perspective, you know, I think an, a, an argument can be made that Hai Di Lao's management team is not being dishonest even though there is a high level of uh, related party transactions there. Yeah. Yeah. The absolute value of those profit margins must also be, uh, must also be scrutinized. Makes so in Hai Di Lao's right. case, it's like, um, before COVID, you know, its profit margins are in the uh, high single digit to low uh, teens range. So that's actually a pretty uh, decent profit margin, for, especially for a restaurant operator that does not franchise. So, you know, yeah. if you're a purely franchised uh, network, then the, par- the parent franchisee tends to have very high profit margins. But if you mm-hmm. run your own restaurants, then your profit margins will actually uh, be lower because, you know, yes. it's not cheap to run a restaurant. I, lo- I look at the absolute number and I compare that to its peers. And I think that Haiti Lao is 
not being unfair to minority shareholders mm. if despite the presence of these large amounts of related party transactions. On the capability, I, um, what I do is I try to study a company's history and try to, uh, try to look at how this company has grown its business over time. You know, um, whether or not it has managed to innovate within existing verticals or whether or not it has managed to jump into new verticals and build like, you know, completely s different uh, business lines. I think a really good example uh, of that would be Amazon, which I also have a vested interest in. So uh, Amazon started off as a seller of books online and over time, you know, it started uh, building this cloud computing business, which is now known as AWS or Amazon Web Services. And it had, now it has an advertising business that is surprisingly yes. huge. And for all we know, perhaps in the future, it's going to launch logistics as a service, right? So yep. there are many different, so Amazon has proved that it can actually um, enter new verticals and do really well uh, over time. So I think that to me is a just very strong um, sign of uh, uh, the management team's capability, right? I, I like to look for management teams with a unique and right way of looking at, uh, at the world. Um, and I say this because um, when a management team has a slightly different way of looking at the world, mm -hmm. uh, it's able to build uh, capabilities or skills that its competitors find very hard to achieve uh, because it simply does not see the world in the same way that the company has does. Right? So I think a really good example would be Costco, which I have a vested position mm -hmm. in and, and it runs uh, retail warehouses in the US. You have to pay uh, annual membership fee to go in there to shop. But once you're in there, you know, uh, you as a consumer know with a high level of confidence that whatever products are found in the retail warehouses will be the cheapest that you can find. Um, in the United mm. States. What's unique about Costco is that it has a fanatical um, focus on bringing the best value it can for consumers. So mm -hmm. uh, for most products that Costco sells in its warehouses, it actually marks up the products at only about uh, uh, 14 or 15% from cost. Right? So that's okay. the average markup. And if you look at the gross profit margins of other large retailers in the US, they actually tend to be 20% or more, sometimes 30%. So it mm. will actually mean that the markup is actually 20% or more, 20 plus percent or more. So that's a much yep. higher level markup than what Costco has. So that's the first thing. Now the second thing is that the company is well known for working with suppliers to bring down costs of its products. So for example, if Costco sells a pair, pair of jeans in its warehouse for say $50, right? So that would mean that, that, would mean that its uh, cost price will be say about, uh, uh, how much would that, $45? as an yeah. example, right? So the thing is, after purchasing the products from the suppliers, Costco will actually work with the suppliers to bring down the cost of its product. So mm -hmm. if it's able to bring down the cost of these jeans to $30, Costco would actually bring down its selling prices um, instead of keeping it at the previous uh, okay. level. Yeah, so uh, using the numbers that I used earlier, so initially it was retailing those jeans at $50, right? And, and the cost price was 45 uh, when the cost price becomes 30, the jeans would may perhaps sell at 33 or $34, mm. to, to, you know, in line with the usual markup that Costco yeah. has for its products. So um, it's, it's unusual, right? I think in general, when uh, for most people, if they're running a retail business, you know, if, if the jeans that they previously purchased at 45, if they manage to bring it down to 30, they'll be happy mm. to continue selling at 50 because then their profit margins actually increase, right? But that's not the yeah. way Costco does business because um, Costco believes that even though it's rev it, even though it may sacrifice short-term revenue by bringing down the selling prices, but it can build a much stronger long-term value by generating this tremendous customer loyalty because customers know that Costco yeah. always has their best interests at heart.
the third one. So the fourth one will actually be uh, high levels of recurring revenues, be it through mm-hmm. customer contracts or uh, customer behavior. So I like high levels of recurring revenues because um, when a company has uh, recurring revenues, it does not have to worry about winning business all over again in the next year. So that's the beauty of uh, recurring revenue because it frees up management's mm-hmm. attention to be able to pursue growth instead of just having to worry about building back uh, existing business. So um, examples of uh, recurring revenues. So I think uh, I talked about contracts. So subscription-based businesses, I think, are uh, like the best examples of recurring revenues. But there's a caveat, which is that um, you can have a subscription business and yet not have recurring revenues. Yes. And that's because if, if your service, even, even if it's a subscription-based, but if it's not sticky, if customers do not value the service or product that you are uh, providing through your subscriptions, then it's not recurring revenue, right? Mm. Even though um, uh, the customer may be built every month or something, but uh, once, the, uh, once the product's term is up, the customer is not going to renew. So you have to win back this customer again. So that's not recurring yeah. revenue, right? So um, I like to look for subscription-based businesses with a very high level of um, actual recurring revenue. So like uh, companies that are selling subscription services that are very sticky, Perhaps, you know, if you're mm. a software company, your software is actually mission critical for your customers and you're not charging a very high price for it, uh, or yes. relatively speaking, meaning that the value that your software delivers is actually much higher than the price at which you charge your customers. So okay. in such cases, I, I love such businesses because, you know, I think uh, an argument can be made that these are businesses with very high levels of actual recurring revenues, right? Mm. So the other form of recurring revenues would be... Uh, uh, revenues that are recurring based on customer behavior. So there are a few types. Okay. So for example, if you look at a company like MasterCard, which I have a position in, mm-hmm. each time when people make a payment, if they have a MasterCard credit card, they make that payment with the card, MasterCard gets a, a small cut of that transaction's value, right? Yep. And people make payments all the time, right? When you purchase things online, when you eat at a restaurant, when you buy your groceries, whatever, when you use your credit card, MasterCard gets a small cut of that transaction's value and you make mm-hmm. purchases all the time, all the time. Right, so it's uh, recurring revenues that comes from customer behavior. Starbucks, mm. which I also have a vested interest in, is another example of re- uh, recurring revenues from customer behavior. Because when you purchase a coffee, you consume it, it's done. And when you need your caffeine yeah. fix again, you would have to go back to Starbucks to buy your cup of coffee. Right, so that's recurring revenues. So um, I think a really uh, interesting example would be intuitive surgical surgical robots. So there are actually hospitals in Singapore that uses uh, intuitive surgical robots. They are known as the Da Vinci's, right? So okay. you know, to come across one, that's intuitive surgical product. Um, and so what intuitive does is that it sells those robots to hospitals and, mm-hmm. uh, and also sells all the tools and small parts that are used in surgeries. And these tools and parts, they actually, they are consumable. So after a surgery is done, these parts have to be replaced. Right, so, it cre- so when a hospital has this machine and it uses the machine on and on, it creates this recurring revenue stream because each time the surgery is done, they would have to purchase parts from uh, Intuitive. Right, you, you have your new iPhone every year or every two years and well, because no right to repair, things like that, you, you're kind of forced to change, right? So, and, and if you want to stick with the ecosystem, they just make it so difficult to leave. So, 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 that, so that's one, I think, that, that's a neat you know, example of that. So you spend a dollar with me this year, I want to make sure you spend a dollar fifteen with me next year, right? And, and I think they, they want this what, net value, reten- net dollar retention or something like that. Um, that does this factor into your, your idea of recurring revenue or, or is this maybe a bit less important? 
So uh, talking about Apple first, I think Apple does exhibit recurring revenues from two angles. The first is like what you said, you know, uh, that consumers tend to buy new iPhones all the time after, you know, after two or three years when the old one starts to break down. Uh, even so, even though it's a one-time sort of uh, expensive purchase, but it's a purchase that repeats uh, somewhat periodically um, and frequently enough that I think it can be seen as uh, some form of recurring revenue. Now, the the next form of recurring revenue is something that's a bit more recent, um, and that is Apple's services business. So it has ah, been, yes. um, you know, introducing a lot of different subscription-based products. This subscription business is actually. Uh, growing and becoming becoming an increasingly important part of Apple's overall um, revenue stream. Yeah, so so that's another uh, angle to that recurring revenue um, element. So uh, and for disclosure purposes, Apple is a, a source of company that I have a vested uh, uh, interest in. Um, to your second um, question, which is you know, uh, will this whole upselling kind of dynamic? I, I I love companies that are able to consistently upsell their customers and. And I love it especially if this upselling is not done simply by raising prices, but yeah. by customers being happy to make use of more and more services or products that this company introduces. So you brought up AWS, right? Um, and as well, so these are cloud computing um, infrastructure services providers. So uh, you know, a company may use AWS or Azure for one particular cloud computing need that they have. But over time, you know, um, if they see more and more utility in the in the different cloud computing services that AWS and Azure provides, they may spend more with the companies over time because they were like, okay, now that I have, you know, I have done a certain amount of data storage with uh, AWS or Azure, maybe I want to run some data analytics. And I think that yep. the data analytics capabilities that Azure and AWS have are actually uh, well suited for my needs, and it's not that expensive. So let me run it on mm. AWS and Azure, right? And and then that creates that uh, upsell. Uh, for AWS and Azure, so I absolutely like that dynamic where you know. Um, so one of the things that I, I look out for as well when thinking about recurring revenues is uh, co customer cohort spending dynamics. So I, so like some companies actually report uh, customer cohort spending. So you're able to see like for example uh, the 2018 cohort, right? In how much have mm. they, how much did they spend in 2018 versus 2019 versus 2020 and so on, right? And mm. if that is a graph that is rising over time. Right, and you know that each year the customer each year's customer cohort actually spends more in each year. Then that's a very healthy uh, dynamic to have for the company, provided I think that it, uh, the increase in the spending is more because of extra usage of services and not just because yeah. of pricing. Uh, I, I think pricing is a, also a kind of a good way for companies to earn more revenue from their existing customers over time. But I think. Um, Companies have to be careful with pricing because ultimately, to build a really to build a business with with longevity, um, you as a company, I think it's really important for the management team to think about: Am I extracting too much value from every <laughs> transaction that I have with my customers? I want to always make sure that there is a lot of food left on the table for my customers. Yeah. The yeah. fifth thing I like to look out for would be uh, companies with a st uh, strong track record of business growth. So if a business is winning. Um, there's mm -hmm. an inherent momentum in there that allows the business to continue. If a company is actually doing well, it tends to be able to attract uh, talented employees or, and talented yes. people to want to work with the company. It tends to be able to attract the best partnerships uh, in, in its ecosystem. Yeah. Cool. Alright, cool. What's the last factor that, that you kind of tend to want to look out for? Yep, so the last thing would be uh, business companies with business models that I think can allow them to generate a strong free cash flow in the future. So okay. the idea behind this is that, uh, you know, the basic finance theory 
is that uh, the value of a company is essentially the sum of all the cash flows it can generate from today to, uh, to perpetuity and you discount all of mm. that cash back to the present. The idea that the more cash a company can generate, the more valuable it becomes. So that's why I have this focus on cash flows. Uh, and the other thing about fo focusing on cash flows and not just earnings is because cash flow is harder to uh, manipulate. You need to pay your employees, you need to pay your suppliers. And how do you get the cash to pay? You either have to generate it from the business, uh, from, from mm -hmm. your business, or you have to borrow from the bank or from uh, uh, bond investors, or you have to issue new shares of yourself, right? Diluting yourself is not a good thing as well, right? Um, so. Um, just to give an example of like how there can be earnings without cash flows. So, you know, if we look at, say, some of the oil rig builders in Singapore, they tend to recognize revenue based upon, uh, the, uh, based upon the, the stages of completion that, uh, for the projects that they're working on. So if you're building an oil rig, it may take, say, maybe five years to build. And so every year after you build to a certain point, you may be able to recognize revenue from that particular uh, oil rig. But the thing mm. is that, the revenue recognition and the collection of the actual cash from this rig's customer may not match. But mm. as you're building the rig, you actually have to pay for raw materials, you have to pay for maybe factory space, you might have to pay employees and so on. So you're actually already burning the cash to build that oil rig. But your customers may only mm. be paying you uh, sometime down the road or maybe even after the project is completed. Right? But in that period of time, between commencement of the project and your customer paying, you are paying out a lot of cash, as I mentioned earlier, to build the yep. R-Rate, uh, and your customer will run into trouble, or your entire industry may, 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 be, may be encountering a downturn, such that the value of that particular rig that they're building may no longer be as valuable as it was uh, when you were actually building it. So that creates a lot of cash flow problems. Then, I, know, I think we've talked a lot about different factors and, and how, how you did, but to, to me, I get the sense that this is really holistic right for example if your management is relatively new or, or it's the first time ceo like maybe satya went or was when he got appointed um yes by and large so um so as an example uh you know i, t I talked about that cash flow uh thing mm. so uh if we look at netflix i think that there's a good reason for that yep. in general i'm wary if a company is able to produce earnings but no cash flow right but in uh, netflix case i think there is a good reason for that and it's because uh, it has to, it's generating a lot of um, original content and the company has mm. to pay cash upfront to produce that content before it can then monetize it over a certain period of time. One, I would say nearly non-negotiable criteria for me would be the integrity of the management team. Okay. I think that if I see signs that a company's management team is not treating minority shareholders uh, fairly, that would preclude me from investing in that company. As a management team, you have a lot of power in determining how much of a company's actual value flows to minority shareholders instead of mm. your own pockets. Yeah, it, it really goes back to, you know, when you talk about Costco and, and not being too extractive of your customers, right? So, you know, you've you kind of gone through this whole process and, and thanks for that and you know, what to look out for in, in a good, when, how we could ascertain whether it's a good business, right? But does it mean that you know, I think we, we talked about this way way in front does it mean that a good business means you know buy at any price so the quality of the business is a much more important factor in my investment process than price 
I think that there is a price that is that so every company has a price that becomes uh, stupid to pay meaning that no matter mm. how good a business is if it crosses a certain price uh, it no longer makes it a smart investment decision but okay. I think that the gap between a sensible price and a stupid price is a lot wider than people think so what I did was I think maybe sometime in 2015 or 16 um, mm. I looked at Walmart and I think, okay, what should Walmart's price-to-earnings ratio be in the early 1970s if I were to buy it back then and yet want to make, say, a 12 or 15% annualized return today? And today would be like 2015 <coughs> or 2016, right? And so the number that I found was surprisingly high. Um, it was, I think, in the uh, P-E ratio in the hundreds. And back in the 1970s, Walmart had, uh, was not a business that was loss-making, or that mm -hmm. was producing artificially low profit margins. So it was a business okay. that was already generating solid profit margins. And yet the actual price that I could pay for Walmart was so much higher than uh, its actual PE ratio or price to earnings mm -hmm. ratio back then. Right? And that exercise, I think, kind of opened up my eyes to like, the gap that I spoke of between a yeah. fair price and a stupid price to pay. Now, uh, what makes that gap wide would be the quality of the business. So Walmart for mm -hmm. a very long period of time was a superb compounding machine, right? It was able yeah. to grow uh, its business significantly uh, over, those, over those past like 30 or 40 years. And because of that, um, it allowed an investor to pay a very high price and yet still make a handsome return. So, mm. um, so I think that uh, it's very hard to pin down like an exact number from a general perspective. Okay, I've got to ask, right? And you don't need to name the company. Um, has there been an example, and I'm thinking of, not especially price movements over the past two years, where you've gone, this is a great business. I've looked at the company, but I'm just not going to pay this price. It's, it's insane, right? It's, it's way too high. So this is a company called Snowflake. So it runs ah. uh, data lakes. Uh, so it provides a data lake service uh, in the US. So mm -hmm. it's like a, really important uh, service provider for companies with yep. uh, cloud computing, data analysis, and data storage needs. Uh, but from its listing, um, it has always carried incredibly high valuations. I don't have the number mm. off the top of my head today, but it's trading, it's routinely traded at 50 times or more its trailing revenues, yes. right? So that to me is a really high valuation. and. Um, it's not something that I can very easily pay. When you have a company with a very high valuation, you have to be incredibly precise about the future developments with this company's business. The mm. lower the valuation, the wider your range of outcomes can be about the future business development. And the danger with you know, paying a high valuation is that you have to be extremely precise but the world often, you know, I, earlier I mentioned about how bad things can happen from time to time and how like there are crazy things that can happen outside of our, of our imagination. So the world yep. is often not so cooperative and that like crazy <laughs> things can happen. So this makes it more difficult for a company to, uh, for a company's business to proceed on a path that matches that very precise path you need the business to take mm. in order to meet that particular high valuation. So I am comfortable with paying up with, for high valuations if I have a fairly high confidence in the path of a company's uh, business. Now that's it. Um, from a 
portfolio perspective, I would yes. consider myself to be highly diversified because even though even though I may have confidence about a company's future, uh, I am also very aware that I can be very wrong. And yes. I do not want my portfolio to be capsized. Cool. Thank, thanks so much for that. Um, I, I think that's very, you know, that, that was definitely really interesting to me. When you talk about valuation and it doesn't sound like you, you really have an exact intrinsic figure that, that you need to follow. It's, it's more, I, I know the business, now what's the sense of how much I should pay for the business, right? And, and that is, is kind of where all, all these relative matrix, you know, kick in. Or, or do you actually have like a 100 page DCF model that you know we, we don't know about? <laughs> Definitely not a 100 page uh, uh, DCF model. By and large, what I am focused on is trying to make sure that I get the direction of the business's progress mm -hmm. correct. And I think that if I am correct in the direction and somewhat correct in the magnitude of uh, you know traveling in that direction that I think it would, uh, things will be okay. Yeah, all right. Sounds good. Thanks thanks, thanks again um, so much for the time, Serging. Um, hope you have a good day ahead. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Coconuts. So I hope you learned something useful today. I definitely did. But of course, whether or not to invest is always a personal decision. We are not here to tell you to do this, to do that, but are always happy to geek out with you about different interesting perspectives, companies, and trends for the future. This series definitely has a lot more depth. So if you have any feedback, ideas, or companies you would like us to cover, do drop us a line through our socials or email us at hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. See you next time.